This is day three, July 2022, seven day session. And we'll return to our text from the previous uh, days of this session. Uh, it's called Dream Conversations on Buddhism and Zen. This is the teachings, the, uh, the written replies uh, about Zen practice to, by uh, Muso Kokshi, national teacher Muso of the 13th and 14th centuries, translated by Thomas Cleary. So, short entries here, no particular order. Essential Zen meditation is not just a matter of controlling thoughts and keeping the body immobile. So, we cannot say that it is important to sit facing a wall and stop thinking. Also, it is not a matter of contemplating doctrinal principles. So we can't say it is important to learn doctrinal principles. Um, so, as far as I know, uh, sitting has been a big part of Zen practice in every temple and monastery. It, well, <laughs> these days, believe it or not, there is very little Zazen that happens in Japan at Zen temples. Most of the practice, this was, this is quite a revelation when I read this in a book written by an American woman who had spent 30 years as a Zen priest in Japan. Most temples there uh, don't do Zazen. They, uh, they do a lot of memorial services and that's how, that's their source of income. Uh, but historically, uh, historically, this is a huge part of, of Zen practice is the sitting. But he's making the point that it's, it's, it's just one mode of Zen practice. The other is active uh, awareness and concentration. He goes on, it does not require wealth, so we can't say we are too poor to do it. It does not require physical strength, so we can't say we're too weak to do it. It does not claim there is no Buddhism within worldly passions, so we cannot say that it is inaccessible to ordinary people. Yeah, this is one of the um, basic uh, discoveries one finds in, in, in the Dharma, is that it's not apart from the worldly passions or uh, the afflictions of, of, of ordinary people. It's more about how to work with those, how to, or even more, how to see through them, see what is beyond our afflictions, mental, emotional, physical afflictions. Another one, the various formal teachings and practices of Buddhism are designed as expedients to guide people according to their individual needs and potentials. 
They are formulated to lead people into the realm of enlightenment and are applied to the state where unenlightenment and enlightenment have already been distinguished. So this is uh, other kinds of Buddhism, not Zen. Then he says, Zen, in contrast, aims for the fundamental state, which is prior to this distinction, that is prior to such uh, dualistic ideas as enlightened and unenlightened, uh, past and future, right and wrong. Therefore, it does not admit of practices based on an existing dualism, but points directly to the primordial unity underlying fabricated dualities. So here, what springs to mind is, uh, say, in uh, Tibetan Buddhism, a Tibetan Buddhist altar has different kinds of deities, wrathful deities, compassionate deities, um, and, and work practice Tibetan Buddhist practices. You work with different states of mind. Zen is more simple than this. It's getting to the ground of it all, the source of all different states of mind. When I was uh, still living <coughs> living in uh, in Michigan uh, before I came here, uh, starting to practice Zen there uh, with the Ann Arbor affiliate group. Uh, one one uh, one day we learned our little affiliate group learned that uh, Gary Snyder was coming uh, to Ann Arbor as invited as a guest speaker and and uh, we had heard that he had practiced Zen so our little group uh, contacted his host where he was staying there in the town of Ann Arbor and asked if we might. Uh, uh, meet with him, this man who had spent eight years in a grueling Rinzai monastery in Japan. And uh, to our surprise, he said, well, come over and we'll have breakfast together. And uh, so we had just an informal breakfast, sitting, holding our our bowls up. Uh, and then he took questions. One of the questions was... Uh, What's the difference between Tibetan Buddhism and Zen Buddhism? I know I've told this story, but I hope not too recently or too many times. And I, I still think his answer squares with my understanding. He said, think of the mind, capital M, mind, as a, as a, a, a great pond. Uh, in Tibetan Buddhism... Uh, you you explore the pond on your way down to the bottom. And you take your time. And you go around uh, investigating, looking at all the different uh, plant life and other simple forms of life and the contours of the 
of the pond and get to know it very well on that level as a, as a thing. Uh, so it may take you a while to get to the bottom. Whereas in Zen, he said, you dive straight down. And you do, you do, you don't know the pond in that relative sense of gathering information and data. You don't know it that way um, until on the way back up. Then after you reach the bottom, the bottom of course is awakening, seeing the ground, the fundamental reality. It's, it's after that that you have the work of uh, learning more about the the pond. So different strokes for different folks. Some people uh, want to go do it one way, and those of us here uh, want to do it the other way. I always, to me, it was never a choice. I had to come to awakening before I died. And since we don't know when I was going to die, we had no, there was no time to waste learning about the pond, but, but to get down to the very bottom f- first. And then he, in the next one, he uses a, a, a different uh, metaphor for the same idea. He says, when we plant a tree, as long as the roots take, the branches and leaves will naturally grow and the flowers and fruits will develop. So when we plant the tree, we are concerned about the roots and not about the branches and leaves. As long as the roots have not taken a firm hold, we prune off the small branches so that the energy will go to the roots, or we could say go to the bottom of the pond. That does not mean, however, that we plant the tree for the sake of the roots alone. We take great care with the roots for the sake of the branches, leaves, flowers, and fruits. So we, we want to see into the fundamental, the non-dual nature of reality, so that uh, what he's calling the branches and leaves and flowers and fruits, uh, we can understand them in a... Um, see the essence of all those branches and flowers and leaves and so forth. So, for example, um, reading. And Zen, the emphasis as first understanding the the, the real underlying truth of the sutras uh, so that we can then later go back and, and study the sutras, maybe, if we want to, and uh, see them in a whole different way. Uh, same with other, uh, what are sometimes called secondary practices in uh, Zen, uh, maintaining our health, uh, diet, um, and then if we extend that out, uh, getting into maybe uh, work in relationships, uh, not that we can't be in a relationship, or we're all in relationships of one kind or another, but 
it's uh, such work acquires a a, um, a fresh and a, and a freshness and a depth after the experience of the fundamental culture, politics, information in general. But going back to uh, Zen practice, other secondary practices are uh, the the devotional side, the prostrations, bowing, uh, chanting, ceremonies, all these uh, come alive in a new way after we have seen into the essence of, of it all. next one he picks up uh, even those who have realized the fundamental are still not completely enlightened as long as they do not know the techniques of a living practitioner such people may indeed have self-realization but they cannot function as guides teachers if they lack methodological skills for helping others This distinction is sometimes referred to as attaining the essence, but not the methods. I would say uh, attaining the essence, awakening, uh, without the developing the skillful means to help others. That's ideally what you want in a teacher. Then again, he says, even though people may have figured out some of the methods, the skillful means, they themselves cannot be teachers if their own perceptions are not clear. These are people who have reached the method, but not the essence. And that's actually the case now, uh, largely the case in uh, Zen, in, in in the United States, in the West, United States, in Europe, and South America, and Japan, is teachers who've been trained in all the rituals and posture and ceremonies and and so forth, uh, but actually have not seen into the, the root of it all, the source, the essence. How do I know that? Well, it's just a guess, having been to uh, some eight or ten meetings of Zen teachers, American Zen Teachers Association meetings, where uh, uh, most of the teachers don't even claim to have any attainment. But, ah, they're masterful in terms of posture and rituals, ceremonies, bowing, robes, Which is not nothing. These are these are not unimportant. Uh, I used to, in my early years, I used to uh, dismiss posture as sort of 
ah, beside the point. It's uh, it's all about the mind, not not posture. If you have enough ardor, enough determination, then uh, posture, whatever. Uh, I mean, of course, I believed in the teaching that it helps to have good posture, but as the years have passed, I've come to appreciate uh, how important posture is, how important it is to to work on posture, one's posture, uh, to the extent that one still can, because uh, we we get our posture uh, gets uh, can get kind of stuck, especially in in old age. We can so easily develop a stoop, uh, and uh, and that's not so easy to undo uh, when you get to be in your 60s or 70s or even 50s. Now I, I, with the uh, with the staff in, in Rochester, I, I do from time to time make points about fine points about posture. Everyone knows you want to sit with a straight back, sit in a stable position, but there are fine points um, that uh, can really help. Well, not to leave anyone wondering what I'm talking about. The the main thing is to have a a good stable base um, with the with a, this pelvic tilt. So when you take a, a, your seating position, regardless of the posture, a chair, even a chair, that you you get the buttocks back, so you're sitting on the sit bones. This makes it uh, much easier to sit upright without strain. The vertebra just stack up one on top of the other. And then the other thing is the other end. <laughs> There's the bottom, and then there's the top, which is the head, to to pull the chin in, to get the head back, to get the weight of the head on the trunk, and not cantilevered out even a little in front. Get the, the ears in line with the shoulders as much as possible. Now, again, we can develop uh, habits that would get entrenched, uh, over the years, so not everyone can get their head back, so it's resting squarely on the trunk. But to the extent that one can, it's going to be, be a little less difficult to concentrate than if the head is uh, out in front of the shoulders. And of course, to relax the shoulders utterly, we don't want any tension in the shoulders. Lengthen the back of the neck. Feel the the uh, the collar against the back of the neck. All the time, sitting, keenheen, walking down the hall to meals. The back of the neck against the collar. It's another way of getting the head pulled in, pulled in like a drawer. I just uh, got that uh, analogy. Uh, not too long ago, I took a yoga class, and the, the, you know this is not just Zen. This posture stuff. This is pff, this goes back thousands of years in terms of meditation postures. And this yoga teacher, he used that analogy to pull the chin in, not 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 let the chin go down. You're not dropping the head, and you're not uh, raising the chin at all. You're 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 keeping it tucked in pulled back like a drawer, straight back. All right, those, those are the main things.
most of us, uh, it takes a long time to really f- uh, get find our seat in with those with these different features of of the posture. Um, but it's worth. It really is worth working on it. He continues now. According to an ancient saying, those who have not yet attained enlightenment should look into the essence rather than the the method. The ex, he's, he's using the word expression. While those who have attained enlightenment should refine skillful means rather than be concerned about the essence. Well, once you've seen into the essence... Uh, yeah, you want to see more fully, more deeply into it, but uh, not to put the cart before the horse. See into this, the very nature of mind uh, before presuming to develop some kinds of, uh, of skills, uh, more subtle skills to help others. He goes on to say, the essence is the inner meaning of Zen, which is the fundamental that is inherent in everyone. The expression, or the method, is the varied methodology of the Zen schools. The essence is the root. The method is the branches. Well, it's not quite so black and white. We, we, we still, anyone, as everyone here knows, we've got to learn the method. We've got to learn how to sit and carry ourselves and, uh, and find our way through the various uh, um, rituals of, of Zen if we're going to participate with other people. But it's just the importance of the essence And then one more here, one more entry continues on. After realizing the essence of Zen, people in ancient times used to spend decades polishing themselves thoroughly in order to free themselves from compulsions of conditioning and habit. This is called the work of maturation. The completion of maturation is called the attainment of integration. A lot of uh, conceptual words here. Let me see if I can offer some alternatives. So there's first there's the insight, which for most people is quite faint, but it's 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 maybe real enough, but it's uh, nothing compared to what we can uh, see uh, in the future, going forth. But uh, this phrase. Uh, polishing, decades polishing ourselves to free ourselves from compulsions of conditioning and habit. Karma. Habitual reactivity, reacting the way we react 
re, our reflex way of re- reacting to to people in, in stressful situations, to circumstances. This is this is more or less what he's talking about: conditioning and habit. And this is this is daily sitting and sashins when we can manage to do them. This is the maturation, the seasoning that goes into practice, long practice. And then what he's calling the completion of this maturation or seasoning is is having integrated uh, the our our essential insight having integrated that into the complexities of of daily life i fished out one of my uh, favorite passages about all this this is from uh, the golden age of zen uh, edited by john wu and uh, here's here's the passage and this is he's these are the words of kuishan or Guishan, uh, his Japanese name is Isan. Um, he's probably most famous uh, for for his uh, the koan in which uh, he kicks over the water bo- water bottle. The uh, abbot uh, Shakujo, the abbot of this huge monastery, decides he needs to find someone who's capable uh, to take over a different monastery. And so he hatches a plan uh, to test before the whole sangha, test the insight of, of, the, of the monks who want to compete, so-called. And uh, so he sets a water bottle on the ground, and he says, without calling this water bottle, what is it? And the head monk knows that it's his position to to step in and do, offer his best. So he comes in. I can see his hands uh, folded at his chest in the formal ch- way of a Chinese monk. And he said, it cannot be called a wooden sandal. Not a bad response. It's uh, he's, He doesn't fall into the trap of naming it something. He says what it can't be called. That's pretty good. He's been around the block. But then Guishan, Isan, uh, comes forward and just kicks off, kicks over the water bottle and keeps walking. And Hyakujo says, all right, You are the winner. So that's this Kweishan here, the one who kicked over the water bottle. And he says, If one is truly enlightened and has realized the fundamental, he is no longer tied to the poles of practice and non-practice. But even though the original mind has been awakened, there still remains the inertia of habit, formed since the beginning of time, 
which cannot be totally eliminated at a stroke. He must be taught to cut off completely the stream of his habitual ideas and views caused by the still operative karmas. This process of purification is practice. So regardless of what we see, of what we attain, we have to do this our whole life. Because our our habitual reactivity, uh, the mind and the the body, it's it's so so entrenched in us. The things that keep getting us into trouble in our relationships, our our reactions to people close to us, spouses, friends, family. Parents, children, that's all reactivity. Reacting, reacting, keep getting, stumbling, caught, regretting it. Hopefully apologizing. But, uh, but the most essential thing is to keep the practice going day after day. And this has, is a way of snipping the the roots, the, the tendrils of these habit forces, this reactivity. It keeps them from digging too deep and setting down their roots too far. heard from more than a few uh, of my students who say kind of uh, kind of a faint smile that uh, their uh, their wife or husband said uh, you know I think maybe it's time for you to get to another sashin that's that's the lucky one whose partner is on board with it, the ones who uh, have to, the ones who have a a handicap are the the partner who is against the practice. Turning some pages here. Here's about uh, the translator gives it the little heading worldly feelings, attraction, and aversion are two feelings that keep people within the bondage of ignorant, repetitive behavior. Again, karma. 
Those who seek only what pleases them and try to avoid what displeases them are acting in this way because they do not realize the nature of the world, the nature of reality. To seek only what pleases us and try to avoid what doesn't, what displeases us, that is, the, the caught between the pillars of pleasure and displeasure, uh, he says, uh, just don't realize the way things work in the world. Notice he doesn't say they're bad people. It's just, it's futile. It's futile to devote oneself to seeking uh, just what gives us pleasure and uh, and trying to avoid what gives us displeasure because it can't be done. There's always going to be there's going to be something that that uh, some kind of uh, aversion, displeasure. And then he elaborates: for those who know the nature of the world, lack of complete satisfaction or fulfillment in things of the world is in itself advice to cultivate detachment. So, yeah, the first noble truth, dissatisfaction, suffering, that's where practice starts, that's where evolution starts, is discontent, dissatisfaction, frustration, anxiety, That's the that's the the engine that gets us to the mat. We're not happy with ourselves the way we are. And then he says, if people do not crave to be pleased, they will not be displeased. That's uh Really, a, a, a profound statement. I underlined it. Underlined it. If people do not crave to be pleased, they will not be displeased. Craving, desire—it's bottomless. I think it was Shakespeare who said, "The ocean hath." Bounds, but deep desire hath none. No matter how much we acquire, how much we gain, it's never going to be enough on the, on the worldly level. Never going to be enough things or success. But you all know this. This is just Buddhism 101. So, the intelligent way of dealing with our unceasing desires is to reduce the desires rather than to imagine we can fulfill them all. You know all this. And the final sentence here, what causes mental suffering is not the environment, but the mind itself.
it's a real uh, leap in evolution when we realize this. It's the mind. It's the mind. It determines just about everything. It certainly determines our degree of happiness. Circumstances and conditions, okay, they play a role, but not compared to learning to use the mind in a skillful way, in an intelligent way, which means using our attention, our awareness. And that's why we're all here. I think, uh, yes, an introductory course in Buddhism would, would often say that the Buddha taught that the cause of our unhappiness is uh, being caught between uh, desire and aversion, pursuing uh, our desires and trying to avoid our uh, what is aversive to us, our likes and dislikes. Yeah, we have our own nifty way of saying that in affirming faith in mind, the chant we do. Um, Great way is not difficult to those for those who do not pick and choose when preferences are cast aside. The way stands clear and undisguised. Things get easier if we're not bound by our preferences. It's just easier, lighter. Uh, the, Buddhist, the Buddhist teaching is, is almost a science more than a religion. He's just, how can we reduce suffering, our own suffering and that of others? Cause and effect. This causes suffering, this doesn't. Habitual reactivity causes suffering and not being bound to reactions uh, is freedom from suffering. Next one, it is not necessary to get rid of worldly feelings in order to work on the fundamental. Those who are keenly aware of the precariousness of our situation as human beings and the brevity of our opportunity to awaken and who use this awareness to hone their will are not distracted from the work by worldly feelings. Feelings that arise because of circumstances can actually be used to fuel the urgency of work toward the fundamental. Preliminary methods of softening worldly feelings are taught for the sake of those with insufficient determination. This does not mean that work on the fundamental is to be undertaken only after worldly feelings are ended. 
Well, um, when he talks about methods of softening worldly feelings, oh, here's one. Here's one that springs to mind. Um, Meta meditation. A very effective way of softening feelings of ill will towards someone. It's ten times as effective if we have a background of of concentration practice, like zazen. Metta, I think, strictly speaking, is not zen as such. It's it can be useful as a kind of a tool if we find that we're boiling with anger toward someone, then we can employ meta meditation as a as kind of a homeopathic doses. But that, I think, is an example of uh, what he's referring to, softening worldly feelings. So he's distinguishing between that, working with the feelings, uh, rather than seeing what is beyond all feelings, beyond emotions. That's the fundamental Other obstructive feelings that we can can uh, find ways of working with to soften them is uh, grief, envy, yeah, is, um, getting out of the grip of these feelings, not suppressing them. Just not having them dominate us, dominate the mind. And that happens also through zazen. It may take a while with a strong feeling like hostility or or envy or grief, jealousy, things like that. It can take a while, but then uh, just by allowing thoughts to settle in simple zazen just allowing that to happen we we gain some freedom from these um, binding uh, feelings and and uh, of course methods of softening worldly feelings would also include psychotherapy can help psychotherapy can um, can pull out wedges from our psyche that get in the way of practice. Psychotherapy is a way of uh, of getting unstuck in certain ways that enable us to to get deeper into Zen practice. He continues, even while you call to mind ways of softening worldly feelings when they arise, still you should not give up work on the fundamental. So, yes, psychotherapy definitely, definitely has its place, but don't 
drop the sitting while you're doing in the months or years that you're doing psychotherapy. It is said that people with intense determination for awakening neglect even to eat and sleep. Such people do become tired and do become hungry, but they rest and eat in the midst of the work and therefore are not hindered even when sleeping or eating. So with respect to eating, of course, while we're eating, we keep keep our awareness of the practice. We don't need to drop it in order to eat. It may be hard, but we work at it. We keep coming back. We take a, a mouthful and we've already forgotten about the practice we're working on, but then we come back to it. Resting, same. We have periods, rest periods during Sashim. We can rest and keep the mind aware of the practice, keep the attention on the practice. If people who lack such determination go without eating or sleeping, they will become ill. This will hinder their practice, so they are encouraged to eat enough to overcome hunger and sleep enough to overcome fatigue. This does not mean, however, that they should forget the work while eating or sleeping. Now, if you are puzzled how we can avoid forgetting the practice while we're sound asleep, I'm with you. I never understood this line. It's not the first time I've read it in Taisho. When you're unconscious, what, where, what, how, what can you do? An ancient Zen master gives this advice. When you walk, watch the walking. When you sit, watch the sitting. When you recline, watch the reclining. When you see and hear, watch the seeing and hearing. When you notice and think, watch the noticing and thinking. When joyful, watch the joy. When angry, watch the anger. So, mindfulness, in a word. Awareness. The Buddha mind. Awareness. Just a little more here. There is a popular practice. This we're talking about the 14th century. There is a popular practice commonly found in Buddhist sutras and Zen writings that consists of looking upon all phenomena as if they were dreams or illusions. 
And then he says, this practice is in the realm of method and is not an ultimate teaching. So you can imagine uh, walking around and having this mindset, okay, this is an illusion, this is an illusion, this is dreamlike, there's no substantiality to this. This is sort of this kind of self-talk. Um, is not Zen, really. Um, trying to look, not to start with a template of seeing everything as illusory, but just look and see the nature of things and the mind with the the practice, the breath practice of the koan, shikantaza. It's not so much a... This is like a, a tool, probably a somewhat effective tool, but uh, pure Zen practice is uh, is not really a tool exactly. It's just seeing things as they are, not as we've read about them in, t- in a in a sutra. Uh, in college, I during my brief drug phase, uh, I had a friend uh, who, when we were uh, tripping, he would come out with these formulas like, it's all illusion, it's all illusion, it's all maya. Um, okay. <laughs> Good for you. Let's stop now and recite the fourth house.